0: Can you guys hear me now? Okay, so we're, we're off to an okay start. Merry Christmas. It's good to be here. I'm glad that you uh, chose to uh, celebrate uh, the Sunday before Christmas with us. For those of you who are part of Harvest Family, today's a longer day because we have the family Christmas day this afternoon in Grand Haven. And though I don't have kids... I'm gonna be there just to see my grandkids with the animals in the gym. We planned this event three months ago and we said, ah, we're gonna bring it inside. We don't want you guys out in the cold and the snow. And uh, looking back, maybe we could have had it outside. It wouldn't have been so bad, right? Um, Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel, the ninth chapter. And uh, we are here today to celebrate the birth of our savior. And uh, that happened 2000 years ago, a birth that changed everything. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers coming down the row. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. I'd love to have God's Word in your hand. But 2,000 years ago, a Savior was given to us, and this birth changed everything. Would you agree? I'm actually going to take you back 1,000 years before the birth of Christ to Second Samuel 9, and let me give you a little bit of the um, story behind the story that we're going to be studying this morning. There are two nations, two armies, they're gathered in the Gilboan mountains. They have been rivals, enemies for decades. And this is going to be the battle that determines the fate of both nations. One nation is fighting for its homeland, the other nation is fighting for a land that God has promised to them. And as they engage in battle, as the battle begins, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that on this day, the hand of the Lord is not with the nation of Israel. They are fighting the Philistines. They find themselves um, outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. And the battle quickly begins to turn against them. Actually, the text sums it up this way. 1 Samuel 31, verse 1 says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Word comes from the battlefield back to the palace that the Israeli army is in retreat and that the king's oldest son, Jonathan, has been killed. Jonathan's next uh, oldest brother is also dead on the field of battle. His next oldest brother is also slain in combat, so word comes back that the the king's three sons are now dead. The text describes in 1 Samuel 31 that the king himself has been wounded on the field of battle. He has been hit with um, archers, arrows, plural, and uh, as he is on the battlefield, he cannot retreat with his forces, and he turns to his armor bearer and says, take my sword And thrust me through. He rightfully fears what will happen to him if the Philistines capture him alive. And so the armor bearer looks at the king and says, I can't honor that request. He refuses to do what King Saul has asked him to do. So Saul takes his own sword, and the text says that he falls on it, and he is now dead. The armor bearer, in response, takes his sword, falls on his sword, And also dies on the field of battle because if you're an armor bearer for the king, you don't return from battle without your king. You can imagine the chaos that is now filling the um, cities of Israel as the army retreats and they're saying we need to flee before the advancing forces of the Philistines. There is chaos in the palace One simple verse again says this. It says, when the men of Israel saw that their king and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them in their cities. So that's a simple verse that describes a whole bunch of chaos. Israel has to flee their cities. This isn't like call the realtor and get the house for sale. This is grab whatever you can grab on your way out and run as fast as you can to get away from the advancing forces of the Philistines. We're told just a little sidebar story that Israel is fleeing, there's chaos in the palace, that a nanny of one of the king's grandsons grabs a five-year-old child, and as she begins to flee, the text simply says, in her haste, the five-year-old fell and became lame. So the grandson of the king in the absence of The king's son, one of the rightful heirs to the throne, is now taken away. He is hidden so that the Philistines don't kill him as well. Israel's throne is now up for grabs. Not only do they have the problem of the Philistines and the Amalekites in their battle for the land of Canaan, but now the throne is divided. The king's last son, his fourth son, is crowned king by the tribe of Benjamin But another young man, a son of the tribe of Judah, the king's son-in-law, also claims that the throne is rightfully his. So now you have a fight for the throne, there is a civil war in Israel, it is familial fighting, it is a son versus a son-in-law, it is a tribal battle, it is the tribe of Benjamin versus the tribe of Judah, and this battle rages for several years. Finally, this dispute comes to an end when two of the king's sons' own tribesmen, two guys from the tribe of Benjamin, sneak into the king's quarters at night, and while he's sleeping, they assassinate him, they stab him, they cut off his head, and they take his head and they bring it to the son-in-law, believing that they're going to receive a hero's uh, welcome for killing his rival. The son-in-law sees what these men have done. He immediately identifies them as traitors and has them beheaded as well. So now finally, the kingdom of Israel is united under one king, King David. Just one more thing as we get to 2 Samuel 9 and 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with King David it's called the Davidic covenant and in that covenant it says this in verse 15 of second chapter of second Samuel 7 God says my steadfast love will not depart from David as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever So this gets us to chapter 9, and I can see from your faces, you're all thinking, hey, what a wonderful Christmas story, right? Like like you just picked a real winner here. Christmas isn't this hard. You go to Luke 2, there's mangers and shepherds and sheep and poodles or whatever, okay? And and I'm going to get there, I promise, but we're going to get there kind of in a roundabout way. I want to show you what God's word says in 2 Samuel 9. Here's the... We'll pick it up in verse one. Hopefully you're following along. It says in verse one, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there Is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Zebah said to the king, He is in the house of Machur, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then the king sent and brought him from the house of Machur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And now here's our main character, Mephibosheth. That's his name. Mephibosheth. I've had a terror all week that I'm going to have to say this name 25 times in a Christmas service, Mephibosheth. So I've been practicing, say that with me, Mephibosheth. Okay, we're probably gonna be calling him Seth by the end of the message, just so you know, but it's Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan that is brought before David. The son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, literally fear not. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Just some quick things I want you to see about Mephibosheth's reality as he comes before King David. Here's the first thing you need to understand if you're going to understand this story. Mephibosheth is an enemy of the king. If you were to go back to the first verse of this passage, uh, verse 1, if David's sentence had just said this, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? You would think that David was trying to gather up any descendants of his rival Saul to have them... Killed. It was not uncommon for a king who has come to power to eliminate any potential rival. And with all of Saul's sons dead, this young man Mephibosheth, he is a rightful he has a rightful claim to the throne. So David is saying, is there any of Jonathan's sons left? And if that's all that you knew of the story, the assumption would be made that he's going to do consolidation by elimination. Let's gather up the rest of my enemies that are surviving. And this would make sense because already Mephibosheth's uncle had started a civil war. So he is an enemy by nature of the king. You can imagine as David sends his soldiers, his troops to go find this young man. Hey, the king wants to see you. What must have been going through Mephibosheth's mind? Well, he's got to believe this is not a great meeting. It's not a wonderful summons that he's gotten from the king. He had to believe that this was a death sentence that was about to be performed because he is Considered an enemy of the king. Second thing to know, he's a fugitive. He's not living in Jerusalem. David is asking one of Saul's um, servants, he's saying, hey, do you know of anybody? David's not even aware of this guy's existence. He is in hiding from the king. He is living with a different family, He is living in a town by the name of Lodabar. Lodabar is uh, translated literally. It means a place of wilderness. Some have translated it no bread. It's a lousy place to live, okay? So he is away from Jerusalem. He is in hiding, living in somebody else's house because the idea is if he is found out by the king, he will be liquidated by the king. He is a fugitive. Third thing that I want you to see, the text is so clear on this, he is crippled. Three times in the book of Samuel, we're told that this young man is crippled. We're told how it happened when he was five years old. Verse 3, when he's introduced by Ziba to King David, it says there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. In verse 13, at the end of this chapter, it says now he was lame in both his feet. Like, they're making a point the kid is crippled. And today, if you were crippled, there's still many, many ways to be very, very productive. Back then, 3,000 years ago, that meant that you were fully dependent on others for your care. And so he, he's crippled. He doesn't have any way to get to the king. The king has to send men, says, bring him here because he is dependent on others. Just one more thing I want you to see. He is an enemy. He's a fugitive. He's crippled. Here's a fourth thing. He's ashamed. Now, now, this isn't easy to see directly in the text, but in the Old Testament, names have significance. Just like the name of the city where he was hiding, Lodabar, that means, you know, place of the wilderness. Mephibosheth, translated literally, means this, from the mouth of shame. From the mouth of shame. Now, now it strikes me weird that a parent would name their kid a name that means from the mouth of shame, Right? But parents are weird, and we name our kids weird things, right? So, so I have my oldest son, Calvin. Many of you know, he's he's senior pastor here. Do you know what Calvin means literally translated? Bald. It just means bald. Like, why would you name your kid Calvin? You're thinking, well, you're a pastor probably after the great reformer, John Calvin. Uh, not so. I had a college soccer teammate, his Name was Calvin. My wife used to perm his hair. It was the 80s, and we liked him. So Cal got that name, though it isn't associated at all with the meaning. So I don't know if Mephibosheth is naturally a birth name. I'm assuming that it is, but maybe he changed his name later on because of the position that he found himself in. His name means shame. We're not sure exactly of the source of his shame. Maybe he's ashamed that under his grandfather's and his father's leadership that the nation was defeated in battle. Maybe he's ashamed that the royal line that he was supposed to be a part of has now been destroyed. Maybe he's ashamed of the fact that he is a fugitive. Maybe it's been shameful for him that the blessing of Israel was removed from Israel because of his grandfather Saul. Maybe he's ashamed of his physical condition, his lack of being able to take care of himself, to support himself. We're not sure exactly why he carries this guilt and shame. But what the story is clear of, this is Mephibosheth's reality. He is an enemy of the king, he is a fugitive, he is a crippled, and he is ashamed. Now, there's something else I want to point out to you in contrast to Mephibosheth's I want you to look for a moment at David's generosity. At David's generosity. It's an interesting phrase. He says, hey, is there any descendant left of King Saul, of, of Jonathan? Why? That I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake. David was a friend of Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And that's somewhat interesting just to give you some background. David was anointed the king that would follow Saul by the prophet Samuel. Now, thinking this through, if Jonathan was the oldest son of Saul, the throne was going to go to him. But Jonathan saw in David an anointing of the Lord. He recognized that this was God's choice for the nation for the next king. So David, in a friendship with Jonathan, that the two of them become close friends, and in essence, Jonathan steps aside and says, I see the blessing of the Lord on you, David. I know that you're going to be the next king, even though it's rightfully mine. Uh, this infuriates Saul that Samuel has anointed David the next king. If Saul had a reason to be mad at David, Jonathan had even more reason. He was going to take the role of king in his place. But Jonathan protects David from his father and in a moment of friendship recorded in 1 Samuel 20 Jonathan turns to David and says this if I'm still alive show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth and so David makes a promise to Jonathan that he will always show him loving kindness the kindness that Mephibosheth is receiving is not a kindness because of who he is, because of his condition, his identity, or any action that he took. The kindness that he is receiving is because David made a promise to his father. This king keeps his promises. And so David is looking on a, for a way that he can fulfill the promise that he made to his friend Jonathan. No one expects him. To keep this promise Jonathan's dead it was just made between him and Jonathan there's no reason to keep the promise actually to keep the promises to his detriment because he's basically showing kindness to a rightful heir to the throne please note also in the text Verse 3 says, is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? So David is saying that the motivation that he has to show this kindness is not just a promise that he made to this young man's father, but it's also because of the kindness that God has showed David. In essence, what he's saying is because God has been kind to me, I want to reflect that kindness in the way that I treat others. He is actively looking to share that kindness for people who have received grace, they want to give grace. A little study on this word kindness here, it's kind of interesting how they translated it in 2 Samuel 9, typically when you see this word translated in the Old Testament in our version that I'm preaching from the ESV, it is translated the steadfast love of the Lord. When David asks for, to say remember, when Jonathan asked David remember when you get to the throne, remember me, continue to show loving kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love, kindness in this, it's all from the Hebrew word, which is hasid. That word is used 246 times in the Old Testament, almost exclusively to describe the love of God towards us. Our translation usually translates it steadfast love. The translators of the New American Standard Bible, they couldn't figure out what to do with that, so they made up their own word, loving kindness. They just stuck two of them together. It's not how we typically think of love. Most of us know love almost as a relational or a consumer love. I will love you as long as you love me. I will love you as long as you make me laugh. I will love you as long as I'm getting something in return. This isn't that kind of love. This is a contractual love. It is a covenant love. This is God saying, I'm going to love you not because of you, but quite honestly, in spite of you. And my love is going to be there for you through good seasons, through bad seasons. It is a covenant that I am making with you. It is a covenantal love that David is looking to show to this young man. This love is described in Exodus 34. It says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands... Psalm 32 says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. David is looking to show kindness. It's part of his generosity. Here's a second thing. Notice that he initiates the relationship with with Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Is he there? Does he exist? Where is he? How can I find him? Bring him to me everything about this is initiated by David it is a relationship that he is establishing with this young man he is seeking to show this love he is looking for someone to be kind to it says in verse 6 and when Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan son of Saul came to David and fell on his face and paid homage and David said a simple word it doesn't sound that he said Mephibosheth Like, like I don't know what that young man was expecting in that moment from the king, but he was probably expecting to be killed. But no, David knows his name. He's sought him out. He's sent men to bring him. There's been effort to establish this relationship. It is an initiating love. Here's the third thing. It is a relationship that restores. David's generosity brings restoration to Mephibosheth. Verse 7 the end of verse 7 David promises this young man I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father he restores to Saul's grandson the lands that belonged to the former king he says in verse 9 then the king called Ziba Saul's servant and said to him all that belonged to Saul And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And then he says in verse 10, And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Not only am I going to give this young man all of the land of Saul back, but I'm going to provide him with Ziba's family and all of his servants and they're going to become Mephibosheth's servants so that he is provided for. Like like David's generosity towards this young man, a natural enemy, it's absolutely over the top. But he did more than just restore his possessions. He restores the relationship. Mephibosheth is no longer in fear of the king. Here's the fourth thing. In David's generosity, he shows kindness, he initiates, he restores, he also adopts. Verse 10, it says, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, he says to Ziba, shall always eat at my table. And then he says in verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So here is this young man. Our best guess is he is around 20. He's been living With another family, he has been in hiding from the king. He is an enemy to the king. He is crippled and he is ashamed. It's interesting if you look at the way that even Mephibosheth describes himself in the text. In verse 8, he says, what is your servant that that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Doesn't seem like he had a real strong self-image, would you agree? And the king takes this young man in his current condition, in all of his shame, and he says, I'm giving you back everything that your family is entitled to, and you're gonna eat at my table, and you don't have to be in hiding, and you're no longer a fugitive, and I'm gonna treat you as a son. Hopefully, if you're paying attention, are you starting to draw a little bit of a connect towards Christmas? Here's the next point if you're struggling. Mephibosheth's story is the story of Christmas. Mephibosheth's reality is our reality. I want you to think about yourself in light of what we've just described of this young man, Mephibosheth. We're just like him. We're enemies by birth and by choice of the king. Romans 5.10 says, "For for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Whatever Mephibosheth expected when he was summoned by David, because they were enemies, because he was a fugitive, we could expect the very same thing. What what we were deserving of was wrath from God because we are enemies by choice and enemies by birth because of our sin. We're fugitives. Not only are we enemies, but we're enemies. At war, we're we're hiding. There is a natural fear of the king. Colossians 1.21 says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. From the first time that we see, and all the way back in Genesis 3 when we see sin, Adam and Eve, they sin, they eat of the fruit that God has forbidden them to eat from, and what do you see them immediately do? They hide. Why? Because they were ashamed, and they were afraid. See, that's what sin does. It causes a separation. So just like Mephibosheth, we find ourselves enemies with God. We find ourselves alienated or fugitives from God's, from God. Thirdly, we also, just like Mephibosheth, were crippled. Maybe, maybe not physically, but definitely spiritually. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? God, if you kept track of our sin, who could stand before you? We are, we are critically crippled because of our sin, spiritually. And, and listen, I, I know what people say about Christians. I'm sure that over the course of the holidays, there's going to be some, maybe two guys sitting at a bar, talking about Christians and saying, I can't believe they celebrate this goofy holiday of their supposed savior from Two thousand years ago, what, what, what weak-minded people! They need a crutch, and the weird thing is, I agree with them. We do need crutches, every one of us. Do you know why? Because we're crippled, spiritually crippled because of sin. We are in desperate need of a savior to bring reconciliation to a rep, to a relationship with God. We're enemies. We're fugitives. We're crippled. Here's the last thing. We live in shame. Shame was so closely identified with Mephibosheth that was the meaning of his name. Ed Welch, a professor and author of a book called Shame Interrupted, talks about guilt and shame, actually explains the difference between the two. I want you to see this. He says, guilt's message is I did something bad. And in response to guilt, we need justification. We need to need justification and forgiveness. Shame's message, different from I did something bad, is I am bad. and needs an identity shift and a relational connection. Sin leaves both in its wake, and shame is what lingers even after forgiveness has been sought and granted. So our condition is similar to Mephibosheth's. Enemies covered with shame, even when... We're told we're forgiven, we struggle to believe it because our identity has now been associated with the guilt and shame that has encompassed us. Our reality is very similar to Mephibosheth's reality. Here's the second thing I want you to see. David's generosity represents God's generosity. David's generosity represents God's generosity. If you would, could you flip forward like a thousand years to Luke 2? Let's pick up the story there. It says in Luke 2, verse 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. So this happens in Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus is born to Joseph, a descendant of David, because God made a promise back in in 2 Samuel 7 to David, that his line would be established forever, that a Messiah would come through the line of David, because we serve a God who keeps his promises. Verse 8 And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Flock of poodles. Um, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were feared with, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. The exact same thing that David says to Mephibosheth when he stands before the king. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I have zero idea what was going through the mind of the shepherds when all of a sudden the sky lit up and the heavenly host appeared. What we know is there was fear, right? seems reasonable. But in that moment where they were consumed with fear, maybe wondering if this was going to be their last few breaths on this hillside as they watch sheep, the same message goes out to them, this message that this is not a bad moment, this is a wonderful moment because the kindness of God is going to be put on full display in a manger, in a stable in Bethlehem. The loving kindness, the Hasid, the steadfast love of God is on full display in this baby, Jesus Christ, who was sent to be the Savior of the world. Romans 5, verse 6 says, While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, in some translations that, that's enemies, Christ died for us. When Jesus comes and the king arrives, it is an act of kindness. It is also an initiating love. I don't think this is hard to see in the text. You understand that we didn't get to God by going up. We got to God because he came down. That's pretty clear, right? But that little fact, this baby in a manger, this God incarnate, this God becoming flesh is what sets apart Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion in trying to bridge the gap between man and God, they basically say, give us the rules. Religious people love rules. Just tell us what we need to do in order to bridge the gap between us and God, and we'll do it. And if we do this, and if we do this, and if we keep the rules, and if we do the right things, then we obligate God to like us, to answer our prayers, to take us to heaven, whatever it is but it's on our terms because of what we did because we followed the rules. The gospel is in complete contrast to that. It's not about us elevating ourselves to a level where God will accept us. It's about God coming down and forgiving us of our sins because he set his steadfast, covenantial love on us in spite of us. See, the world wants rules because if we can just keep the rules the religious person would say, I've earned my right to God and they keep control of their own life. For the non-religious, they don't want to believe in a God who is holy. They just want a God who loves everybody and forgives everybody because it doesn't require them to change or to bow the knee in any way. But the gospel message is clear. God came down. A savior came. This is the way of mediation, the only way, between God and man and if God was willing to bestow his kindness upon you you need to understand he gets to set the terms of how that kindness is responded to God's love is a kind love David, or the king's generosity our king's generosity initiates it also restores our king looks at us today and says fear not You don't have to fear today. You don't have to fear tomorrow. You don't have to fear eternity. The relationship is restored. The hostilities between us have been removed. Peace has been brokered through a child in a manger who will go to a cross and pay the price for our sin. We once again have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, I want you to see this. Not only does it initiate, does it restore, but the kindness, the generosity of our God adopts. When Mephibosheth went before the king, I don't think his expectation was that he would leave as a child of the king, probably what was going through his mind at the time was I'm going to be killed because I'm a child of the enemy of the king. But he says, no, you will eat at my table always. You will be like one of my children. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. In spite of the fact that we're enemies, in spite of the fact that we were fugitives, in spite of the fact that we were crippled, and in spite of the fact that we carried guilt and shame, if you understand who this baby in a manger is, it is the proof that we have been met with the loving kindness, steadfast love of our God. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? So let me bring this around as we just kind of close this series and this message. We've been studying this thing called generous king, generous people. The holidays are busy. It's it's an unusual time. It's a time of contrast. For some, it's great time spent with family. For other times, it's time spent with family. And sometimes the hostilities to rise to the surface and it can be difficult. It can be sad. For some, it's a remembrance of loved ones who are no longer with us. The, the, The holidays bring out a real diversity in our emotions. Would you agree? David, when he saw the loving kindness of God in his life, what God had given him he couldn't sit still. He said, "If God is a generous God towards me, then I need to be generous towards other. I have to find somebody to show the kindness of God towards. And for you, maybe that's going to be with some kind words that are a stretch for you to say. Maybe it's going to be a forgiveness that is hard for you to grant. I, I don't know what it is in your context. But generous king, generous people, if you are a child of the king, then you need to reflect the king's kindness in the way that you treat other people. When when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. Like, I never liked that part of the prayer. That seems hard, doesn't it? I would apply the same thing here. Are you willing to receive God's generosity in like kind? in the way that you're willing to be generous with other people? See, see, there's no way that we can leave the manger. There's no way we can leave the Christmas story not understanding that we have experienced the generosity of God. How has that changed us? How has that affected us? Generous king, generous people. Not only are we like Mephibosheth in the fact that God came, he saved He restored and he adopted. But we're also called to be like David. Once we realize what God has done for us, how can we be any different in return? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for this holiday. I thank you for the fact that, above all things, it's a reminder of a God who, who made a choice to love us who gave his word that he would love us, who demonstrated his love by sending his son and not just to a manger but to a cross, redeeming us, saving us, justifying us, sanctifying us, adopting us, calling us his own. Father, we just praise your name because the guilt and shame has been removed. We claim the promise that when you see us in all of our failings, rather than look at us, you see the love that your son placed on us, that our sins are covered, that your wrath is removed. Father, thank you for loving us as your children. Father, thank you for sending your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.